Welcome back to Match Volume. We're your hosts, Sadie Olson and Hala Osgur. On this week's episode, we'll be talking to two esteemed journalists from the New York Times and PBS NewsHour about their careers reporting on global climate issues and politics. But first, in place of obsessions, let's get spooky and share our Halloween costumes. What are you going to be this weekend, Hala? Well, actually, last weekend, my brother and I went to Target to get a bunch of onesies for our entire family. And that night we carved pumpkins and we forced my dad to wear an Olaf costume and it was great. Um, So I'm going to be cozy this Halloween in my dear onesie. I saw the picture. It was very cute. (laughs) Um, I last minute ordered a Toon Squad jersey on Amazon and I'm going to be Lola Bunny from my favorite childhood movie Space Jam. Wear my bunny ears and the jersey. It's pretty simple, but it'll be great. Love it. We love a good throwback. All right. On to the episode. Sadie interviewed two very fascinating journalists this week, Somini Sengupta, international climate reporter for the New York Times, and Lisa Desjardins, political correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Let's dive right into the interviews. I'm here with Somini Sengupta. Do you want to start by describing your background and your career as a journalist and how you ended up with the New York Times? So I started out um, many years ago um, in a training program at the Los Angeles Times, then went to work at Newsday um, on Long Island, New York, and then came to the New York Times. I've covered a variety of beats from local uh, school board issues to immigration to some politics. And then I went overseas to become a foreign correspondent. I was first in West Africa based in Dakar, Senegal, but responsible for covering 20 countries in West and Central Africa. And then I went on to become the South Asia Bureau Chief, based in New Delhi, in India. And I was the first um, South Asian American to to have that that post. So that was quite exciting. And then I came back. I came back to, um, to the U.S. after having lived overseas for many years. And um, Again, did a, a bunch of beats. I covered technology for a little while. I wrote about diplomacy at the UN. And about two years ago, I joined the climate team to do this job. Yeah, so I, when I was reading through your articles, I noticed that kind of shift, that evolution and concentration. Um, how has that like affected your reporting, That just the experience of going from like travel to the UN to the climate? Um, just what kind of shift have you seen? I mean, as as a journalist, you bring your experience in previous assignments, you know, with you as you start your new one. Um, But I have to say, I have really had to teach myself the science. And I've had to teach myself how to read scientific papers. And sometimes I have to read those papers three or four times because, you know, it's in um, it's in a different sort of language. and I want to make sure I understand it properly so I can explain it to my readers. Often that means asking what um, probably sound like kind of dumb questions, but because I'm a journalist, I think that there is no such thing as a dumb question. So if I'm not quite following it, I will call up you know, one of the researchers and say, can you just help me make sure that I've got this right? So what are the some of the biggest themes that you see reporting on global climate? I write about the human toll of climate change now um, in various places. So what happens when um, in your part of the world 
there are successive droughts year after year. And you make your living either as a farmer who relies entirely on the rains, or you make your living grazing your animals. And you wake up one morning, I remember being in northern Kenya a couple of years ago, and um, a young um, shepherd saying, you wake up one morning, five of your cows are dead. You wake up the next morning, 10 are dead. Then by the end of the season, you have very few animals left. For the next year, you might borrow some money, you know, replenish your herds, buy some more animals, but then there's another drought, and then you lose it all. So my job is to write those human stories, whether it's people experiencing drought or extreme rainfall um, or sea rise and the erosion of their, their communities. Um, I've written a lot about water crises in various places, you know, where literally, like, you turn on the tap and there's no water that comes out because the reservoirs have pretty much run dry. And as a journalist, I try to imagine, well, what would I do in that situation? So then that's my job, you know, is to is to spend several days talking to as many people as possible, um, really chronicling how people live. So I think climate change like often impacts the communities that least contributed to it that's kind of something that I've um, read Um, so how do you see the effects impacting different communities of different um, countries different socioeconomic levels what kind of differences do you see there absolutely it can Mm -hmm. affect people who are already most vulnerable in part because they're already most vulnerable. You know, they may not have a lot of assets to fall back on. They may not have insurance, you know, like um, more fortunate people in, in wealthier countries may have. Um, one thing that I've really noticed just in the last year is the level of awareness of this issue among young people. Not just young people in this country or in Europe, but really across the world. Um, I interviewed Greta Thunberg in Stockholm, Sweden earlier this year, and she's, of course, the most famous, you know, climate activist, youth climate activist in the world. But, um, you know, as I, as I kept reporting, I realized that there are lots of young people around the world, some of whom have been working on this issue in their own communities in their own ways for quite some time, and many others who have really been inspired by Greta Thunberg's example and have taken this up. And and many of them have really educated themselves and in turn educated their parents about what a grave risk this is, not just to some abstract future, you know, many, many years down the road, but to their future. So I think they've been able to... Um, I know just anecdotally, I know that they've been able to have an impact on many of their their families, their parents, and now I think the question is what impact might they have on the leaders of their own countries to act. So I've been reading your book this week, and you describe journalism as poking your head into one world, then another, and having to belong to none, which I, I loved that quote. Um, tell me about what that means to you as you report on climate and other issues. For me, what I've really learned, um, and I don't take this for granted, 
every time I am surprised and grateful when someone just lets me into their world, right? Um, sometimes that means like sitting in their home um, uh, and talking for hours about, you know, whatever the issue is, whether, um, you know, it was a flood or, um, you know, whether it's some other issue that I've, that I've written about. Um, and oftentimes they are people who are much less fortunate and they always offer me, you know, um, a cup of tea or whatever they have. Um, and most of all, they, they open up and they let me into their, their lives. And that um, is something I'm really, really grateful for. Um, so I was looking through your website and I saw a lot of pictures of you in the field, which I found to be very inspiring. Um, so what is it like being a South Asian American female reporter in the middle of some of the world's most pressing issues? I wish I had a better answer for that because I've only been in in this body. Yeah, <laughs> right. Know? I've yeah. never had another one yeah. to inhabit. So maybe my experience would be really different. Um, so, I, you know, but I don't know. Sometimes, you know, people have to get accustomed to the idea of, you know, answering questions asked by a woman mm -hmm. in some situations. Mm -hmm. um, but I find that, you know, if you are respectful and if you're open-minded um, and if you listen, um, no matter who you are, you can um, get people to open up mm -hmm. and talk to you. M my approach is to talk to ordinary people, um, people who are like me, who... Um, you know, are like my family members, my friends. And I think that sometimes telling big, complicated stories um, makes more sense, is more relatable when you're just telling the story of an ordinary person. And um, I like, I really like to tell stories through the eyes of women and girls. Mm -hmm. Sometimes because they're overlooked, um, sometimes because they're they're interesting you know so um when i write about a water crisis for example in the city of chennai i went there earlier this year chennai had has pretty much run out of water um families are struggling both men and women are struggling but often the responsibility of getting water falls to the woman in the household and so I spent a lot of time to try and understand you know what it's like for ordinary women to deal with this really basic basic resource mm -hmm. yeah that's what I love about the podcast um the daily from the New York Times mm -hmm. is that they and that's why I think audio is so powerful too which is why I love podcasting is because they're able to like get these interviews from these seemingly ordinary people and it brings the story to life and mm -hmm. it makes me connect with the news in a way that I otherwise wouldn't so right. yeah I, I love that um so do, we, do you want to like talk about your family's immigration story a little bit my family is from eastern India I was born in the city called Calcutta um and when I was eight my parents decided to move. And so right after my eighth birthday, we packed up and we went to a small village in Midwestern Canada. So I was going from this like really crowded, large cosmopolitan city in India to a really tiny village mm. in Midwestern Canada. And then we moved from that village to uh, Winnipeg, uh, which is a, yeah, 
small city in Midwestern Canada. And after three years in Canada, we uh, moved to Southern California. So my family packed up there what was we, we had a Ford LTD. It was like a giant boat of a car. And we packed that up and we drove um, down to Southern California where my parents had some, they knew some friends from, from, from Calcutta. Um, and that's where my family has been the whole time. I went to uh, public schools in Southern California, then um, graduated from the University of California at Berkeley. I majored in English and development studies. I really didn't plan on becoming a journalist. I didn't know any journalists really growing up. Um, that was not really a career path. I thought when I was an undergrad at Berkeley, I was going to be an English professor. I really loved analyzing um, texts and um, reading. But then I sort of accidentally, I guess, you know, came into um, journalism in the following way. Um, I was doing various things, and then um, a reporter at the Los Angeles Times said, hey, there's a training program at the Los Angeles Times that you might want to apply to. And at that time, I had written a few stories for the Berkeley newspaper, and I had hosted a radio show. We didn't have podcasts then, but I hosted a public affairs show at the Berkeley radio station, and it was about current affairs. So, you know, I was into the news. I was really into what was happening in the world. Um, and so I applied for this internship, this training program at the Los Angeles Times. I got I got in and I really felt like a fish in water. Like that was where I belonged. And I was very lucky to be able to learn by doing. There were very patient editors and reporters who showed me what I remember do. being very young in um, in Calcutta, my grandfather was a total news junkie, and he always had the daily paper on the table. He always had a little radio beside his, um, his like, bed sofa where he hung out all day, and he would listen to the news. He would read the newspaper, and when he was losing his eyesight, when he was getting old, he would occasionally ask me to read the paper to him. And I might manage like, you know, the headlines or the first paragraph, the lead of the story. I didn't really understand any of it. But I knew that at the end of every day, my grandfather would sit on the stoop. All his old buddies from the neighborhood would come. They would sit there and talk about the day's news, whatever it was. They would just um, argue about it they would discuss it and then you know they would sit around for half an hour and then they would all go back home and I was that kid sort of listening to their conversation from inside the the house the apartment and thinking okay I don't quite follow what they're talking about but I know that this is important that what happens out there decisions made by people that we've never met we've never seen it affects us it affects my family and so maybe like some little tiny little seed was planted in my in my brain um and i did grow up to be very interested in what was happening in the world you know i became a news junkie um and then the, f the first journalist in in my family so in the end of karma your book you talk about the new age of indian um, people the young um indian people and why why do you refer to this shift as the end of karma? Yeah, so the end of karma, the full title of the book is 
the end of karma, hope and fury among India's young. And I really wanted to write a story about young Indians today for two reasons. One, India is like the youngest country in the world. And by that I mean it has the largest concentration of young people of any country in the world, any time in human history. And that's important, you know? So that's the second reason. Like that's important for India for reshaping um, its economy, its democracy, its social norms. Um, and that's important for the rest of us because India will soon be the world's most populous country. It is now the second most populous country, second only to, to China. You know, in some ways, the book um, is an exploration of three generations in my own family. I talk about my grandfather's, my father's generation. He came of age right at independence. India became independent from British rule in 1947, and my father is part of that generation, um, the first generation of free Indians. And um, they are sometimes referred to as Midnight's Children, you know, the title of Salman Rushdie's book about that time. Then there's my generation, you know, the kind of middle generation, and then there's my daughter's generation. And it's that generation that came of age, that is coming of age after India opened up its state-run economy. It's really that generation that um, I was interested in chronicling in the book. So um, I met, uh, I met lots of young people, but I ended up focusing it on seven young people, mostly young women and their particular challenges. So the book is really the stories of seven young people and what they're going through. Very mm -hmm. cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Lisa Desjardins. I work for the PBS NewsHour. I'm a correspondent. I mainly cover Capitol Hill in Congress, but I also cover a large number of Democratic candidates running for president. Do you want to talk about your career tra trajectory a little bit, like where yeah. you started and how you ended up with PBS? Absolutely. I started, uh, my first reporting job was in South Carolina. Uh, and from there, I moved to Washington and worked for the Associated Press. I moved to radio. So I got to do um, national radio for the Associated Press and also did print for them for uh, Washington, D.C. And then moved to CNN after that and was there. And then uh, had sort of the, I made it through five rounds of layoffs because we were a radio we were we did radio for cnn which was unusual and we were fortunate it was an amazing group of people um but in the end cnn just didn't was a television business mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and decided to end their radio business they moved me to tv for a year but then after that i ended up getting laid off myself so we were getting all of these emails constantly from people that were like you know goodbye and thank you and they were mm -hmm. all very nice yeah. you know everyone was being very polite about it but you know people were kind of mad. people were like i can't believe i got laid off or there was a there was a lot of um, there was a lot of angst about it understandably but nobody was saying it in these emails and i finally was like you know i cannot write one of those emails <laughs> i just can't and i have to i'm going to just do this video and so i recorded this kind of like satirical i guess yeah. video yeah. about leaving and I, but i was genuinely thankful to see it mm -hmm. and i was thankfully i really was appreciative of the mm -hmm. experience and um, I just felt like this is a much more honest way of leaving. Um, and uh, so that video was got a lot of attention, which was great. 
Um, fortunately, I was already connected with. It helped me get a lot of job interviews. And I already connected with people in Washington. And um, I knew the executive producer of PBS NewsHour, who had just started that job. And she and I talked. And, you know, I had another job offer as well. I had to make a hard decision about what I wanted to do. And the other offer actually was for um, was better money and better pay, but I or better like vacation potentially. And uh, but in the end, I just really, really kind of fell in love with PBS NewsHour and what they're about. And what I get to do there is really special. So has covering American politics changed a lot since you started? Ugh, yeah, I, I think so. But I think it was beginning to change at that point. I think everyone's going to give you the same answer, right? It's social media has made yeah. a huge difference. <laughs> that was my next yeah, question. Everyone yeah, like, yeah. Right, it's the, but yeah. it's true. I mean, it's made a crazy... Um, it's made a very crazy industry politics always been nutty mm -hmm. in this country mm -hmm. since the beginning. It's made it even more nutty. It's mm -hmm. made it like on, you know, kind of acid, I guess. I don't know. It's really, um, and on the one hand, it's, it's helpful for journalists because you can, we can get information faster as well. And some of my sources, I, own, I contact them primarily direct messaging over Twitter or some other social media. So it's very helpful that way. But it has created this really um, hostile atmosphere. And I think we might be at a turning point where people, it's still not okay to attack people the way that some people are being attacked. But I think that people are learning that it really doesn't have as much meaning as it, people thought it did a few years ago. The problem is sometimes it does grow into such, there's so many people that it becomes it becomes a movement and it becomes a movement of anger. And I think we see that sometimes on, on both sides of the political spectrum in the last couple of years. It's really worrisome. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and this, this had been going on for a few decades, um, kind of since Ronald Reagan, the amount of money going into campaigns is now astronomical. And the campaign industry is, um, you know, I wonder if sometimes if it rivals the entertainment industry because there is so much money being raised and put into ads and put into opposition research. Sometimes it's put into staff. That's great. It's jobs, people on the ground. Um, but it, it has just become a thing where politicians have to fundraise, fundraise, fundraise. And the focus can be on that, which also opens the door for access to certain groups of people to politicians um, and it creates a real it can create a real imbalance in the system that's worrisome so how do you think political coverage in america is different to other countries like how do you think mm. working for pbs is different than working for like bbc that is a great question i'm lucky that we have um, friends in great britain that we mooch off of every now and then <laughs> <laughs> we go stay with them for free yeah. when uh, the plane tickets are really cheap and so i get to um, see what's going on in british media up close and you know it's a very different atmosphere it's almost like they have, they have such a tabloid press that sort of what happens on our cable news tv where it's kind of everything is big fonts yeah. and everything is exclamation and can you believe this and this person did that you know all of their media their 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 print press is more like that versus their broadcast press the bbc is kind of more like our print press and more mm -hmm. kind of taking a step back mm -hmm. and deep breath. You know, mm -hmm. they're still a little bit, they're affected by the tabloid press, you can tell. They're still, um, but it's it's sort of a reversal of the approach here in America. I think that, I do think PBS is, is closer to the BBC mm -hmm. than it is For to sure. American cable stations. And I think 
Um, I think that's good. Like I, you know, I, I think cable is like everybody, there's a place, like I'm glad we have it all. But I think right now there's so much because it's so hyper-partisan. Mm-hmm. And I think because in a way that's driving ratings for a lot of cable stations that this sort of like breathlessness, this sort of like anxious kind of telling of things and kind of drumming up of anger, that anger is real. But I think that those kinds of things on cable, like that's fine that that's there, but I'm really glad that we have like PBS to sort of be like, okay, let's try it. We want to talk about the anger, but we're going to talk about it and try and be thoughtful. And Mm -hmm, like, let's just, everyone just calm down. Let's try and sit at a table about this. And Mm -hmm. it's cool. Like we're not trying to erase emotion, but we're also not trying to, um, add salt to like the wounds in America right now. Mm -hmm. So do you find it challenging to speaking of PBS to keep your composure Mm -hmm. when like when your opinions may conflict with your reporting? Right. I get that question a lot. I'm really lucky in that I uh, I don't I, I legitimately don't generally have very strong opinions. I really think that I really look at both parties as flawed and deeply flawed. And I look at them both as generally being a mix of people who got into politicians for the into politics for the right reasons i think there's i think lawmakers don't get credit that enough credit that a lot of them are doing this because they want to make things better in some Mm -hmm. way but i also think there's just as many um and sometimes within the same person that that struggle of uh people who are just in it for the political fight and in it because for the power they may not always recognize it so i think if you look at all politicians that way if you kind of question them all um, it, it makes it a little easier, you know, and I, I came from, I grew up in politics, so I sort of became disenchanted with it when I was young. And I think that's easier. I think reporters who may not ever live in politics, who, you know, who, who aren't part of a campaign, but become a reporter, you know, I think there's a little bit of enchantment and they kind they might see one cause as something that really speaks to them. And that's great, you know, but I, I think I'm fortunate in that I, I really am able to sort of question all sides. Now, that's not to say I do think sometimes there's right and wrong. You know, sometimes I think that there's America has a problem. Like, let's say gun violence. We have a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fine for me to call out our leaders and say, you're not addressing this. Let's what are you what are the answers? Now, I don't know what the answer is. I'm not weighing in on what the answer is, but I'm going to evaluate the the ideas and say, okay, that idea is a, a substantial idea that would make a difference. That idea is not. You know, and I, like I have no problem doing that. But I think in terms of, um, let's say President Trump. Let's just imagine a case like President Trump. A lot of people have opinions on President Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that it is important for us to call out when he says things that are not accurate, not true. We've got to do that. That's our job as journalists. But in my mind, something I'm also always doing is I'm remembering that tens of millions of Americans voted for this man. And there's a reason that he's in office. There's mm-hmm. there's there's something behind him that I also have to be thinking about, you know, and I can't just go in and say, oh, he's so good. Oh, he's so bad. You know, that's not my job is to kind of look more deeply than that. When President Trump was running for president, I was covering his campaign for PBS. And um, he had a very, very small group of advisors at this point. It was like t- the beginning. It was yeah. a tiny, tiny campaign. And um, and I know from those sources, I know from sources that were in the campaign at that point, that it was like a mess. Like it was, you know, th- they were in Trump Tower, right? So everyone was like, oh, they've got some sweet office in Trump Tower. No, they had this floor that was like bit wires hanging out from the ceilings. They had like a car card tables with like nothing on it with their laptops on it and it was just sort of like 
you know, kind of a wild ride. Mm -hmm. It wasn't pretty. It's not, it's sort of organized. It's sort of not organized, you know, and I think I want to peel the curtain away a little bit more from what politics actually looks like. It's Mm -hmm. not all, it's not all clean and polished the way Mm -hmm. people think it is. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about the next election. What are some of your observations from the primaries and the first debates? Right. It is amazing. This is an amazing election. Uh, the Democrats have put together a rather incredible cast of characters, um, or they've sort of just come together, I guess, on their own, really. Uh, I do think it's amazing and important that we have our most diverse uh, group of candidates ever. I think mm-hmm. that's really important. But I also think it's notable, and as a journalist, I continue to look at, well, why are the people who are doing the best, the people who are white and men, with the exception of Elizabeth Warren, um, but she's also not a person of color. So there's a question of like there are more there are more candidates of color that you know that I think is really important. But why why is it that they're not in the top one, two or three yet? I don't know. Right. And I think that you have to give Bernie Sanders maybe all the credit for mm. um, the direction that the party is going in, good or bad. There's some people who don't think that the direction is good. But he he his campaign four years ago is what has caught fire, I think, with a lot of the Democratic base still. And they're all, a lot of these candidates are angling, except for the moderates like Klobuchar mm-hmm. and to some degree Buttigieg. Um, they're all angling for that kind of lightning that Bernie Sanders seemed to gather, this idea that we want, we don't want to play small ball anymore. We want big change. But the the question that Democrats keep having to come back to is who, who can win, right? And I think that they're in a moment right now of... Um, it might change again, but I think at, when I talk to voters, Democratic voters, I think that they have a lot of doubts about Biden right now. Mm-hmm. And even though he does really well in polls against the president, and he certainly could bring, um, I think, some Trump voters to the table, mm-hmm. uh, the the lack of oh, like excitement for him is something that Democrats are weighing very carefully. And I think there's right now there's a backing off from him. It might now that might swing back again. Uh, but at the at this moment, the trend is moving away from Biden, even though he's still right there right. with Warren at the top of the polls. I think there's this idea that and it it's not unjustified. If, if you don't have if you get to November of an election year and you have a candidate that's kind of safe, like mm-hmm. you, you vote, if you don't, you don't have a candidate that's generally exciting. That, that hasn't won, you know, yeah. in our elections, really, all the way back to Reagan, with, yeah. with one exception. It's always been the candidate that seemed um, more fresh yeah. that has won. And, I, yeah, I try to, like, picture them on the debate stage with oh, Trump. That's interesting. And it's like, I like that. And it's, like, picturing, like, Elizabeth Warren uh-huh. versus, like, picturing Joe Biden. It's, uh-huh. like... I just feel like it'd be harder for him to win because he's not so like charismatic, you know. Well, he's such a known quantity, yeah. and that helps him, right, mm-hmm. with a lot of voters. But there's a whole group of voters that, that that's not what they want. They mm-hmm. want something different. Um, I yeah, I actually would love I mean, the, the debate scenario is a tricky one because the debates don't always. You can lose a lot of voters in debates. It's harder to win voters in debates. Like on West Wing, basically, is mm-hmm. the only place you can win a lot of voters on debates. <laughs> but um, but I think an interest. There are a couple of really interesting matchups that I think people haven't quite imagined all the way through that I would love to see on a debate stage, like a Buttigieg Trump matchup. I think would be super interesting. Mm-hmm. I think a Tulsi Gabbard and mm-hmm. Trump matchup. Like I would, I would love to see that. I think a Klobuchar and Trump matchup would be really interesting. I think Julian Castro has shown that he is going to bring some fire to debates. So I want to see. I wouldn't mind seeing that either. Um, 
I think Cory Booker is a candidate. I keep waiting for him to have his moment, his breakout moment, because he is doing so many things right. His campaign is a is a well run campaign, mm-hmm. um, and he is a consistent candidate, uh, and he speaks to a lot of things that Democrats say that they want. Um, I don't know if he's just been too much of a known quantity, or he. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I keep waiting for him to break out. Right. I keep waiting for that moment. Maybe it'll come the next debate. Maybe it won't, but his. I think he, he his campaign staff knows that the window's closing for that yeah. moment to happen. So, how do you see the campaign trail for Trump like different from mm. the last time to this time? We'll see. Right now, the like the way people in Washington and political reporters talk about it is they talk about those kind of what used to be the blue wall states that Trump won mm-hmm. as being the critical states. So mm-hmm. there, you're talking about uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Pennsylvania as big ones. You also have to talk a lot about Florida in any election um, and Ohio. And so I think so it's sort of like the states we always talk about, plus, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, I guess, and Minnesota, the president wants to put or keep on the board. Um, But I think that Democrats are going to it's going to be like it was to some degree last time an issue of turnout. Yeah. And, you know, covering the Trump campaign last time, they openly told me and I know they openly told others they they. Their whole plan, and it worked in those states, like in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, was to suppress the the Democratic vote. Mm -hmm. And what that meant specifically was union voters and city voters. And what they did was they, um, unions, which, you know, have a really long uh, alliance with the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party, uh, they worked behind the scenes to get those unions who really didn't trust Hillary Clinton. They weren't sure that she really believed in them, especially when it came to international trade deals, that they, the Trump campaign sort of had these sort of backdoor discussions with these unions that said, listen, you don't have to endorse us. We know you're not going to endorse Donald Trump, but just don't work that hard for Hillary Clinton. You know, you can tell them whatever you need to tell them, but just don't, don't just dial it in. And they feel like that's what happened mm-hmm. in some of these places, you know. And then, and then you in the areas outside of Philadelphia, also huge urban center, huge urban core, a lot of Democratic voters. <clears throat> they also tried to find ways to suppress votes. And so this gets into two areas. Sometimes, as it's fair political gamesmanship, like when you're dealing with unions and you're like, oh, you don't really like your Democratic candidate, I'm going to sort of do this like backdoor, maybe sketchy thing, but you know, certainly not illegal deal. But then there, there's a different question that we need to talk about a lot and we need to watch very carefully this year about um, states and others' tr- efforts to try and keep people who have um, legitimate rights to vote mm-hmm. and interest in voting from getting to the polls. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that generally has affected, that generally has been Republicans keeping Democrats from the polls because <clears throat> Democrats generally are thought of as having a larger voter base that doesn't show up yeah. and that they're more easy that it's easier to keep them from the polls largely because there's lower income they've got jobs they don't have time you know it's they've got way up many other priorities a lot right. of Democratic voters yeah thinking of the polls and they some of them don't have histories of voting so um that concept is something we have to watch really carefully um, in a lot of states this mm-hmm. year and I think I think p- Americans um, of all stripes know the stakes right now and I, I think you know one of the bigger questions we're gonna that really is going to affect next year everyone's going to try and dissect it a thousand ways but are Americans who supported Trump exhausted by him now you know or do they think it's worth it um, to keep him in office because they believe in what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second part of that question is, you know, and are they comfortable with whoever the Democrats 
nominate. So lastly, how do you make politics accessible to the average American? Right. I think a lot about that. I think you have to really take yourself out of the weeds because the things that I talk about with my sources and the things that are on the minds of like political consultants, you know, are like really weedy poll numbers and crosstabs and, um, you know, like legislative maneuvers and procedures. And I always have to step back and really try and break that down into, okay, what actually matters? What actually matters to someone sitting at home and what's going to really affect the next events? And so I almost feel like you have to like use a strainer to like all this mm-hmm. information yeah. and you have to in the end just pick out um, the most important things. And it's really important, so important to use language that is like normal people language, yeah. <laughs> you know, not yeah. language that political consultants right. use because they're in their own world. Yeah. And they they honestly, there really is a bubble. You know, they really don't necessarily uh they're not thinking about people who are working overnight shifts all the time. I mean, they talk about, they kind of think about it, but they're not in that zone. And so you have to really talk about it like you and I are talking, you're sitting at a table with someone. Um, I also think for TV, it's really important. This is, this is a nerdy thing to say, but it's really important to get the graphics right. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to get the visuals right and keep them simple, but have them Connect the dots visually when you can. Thanks, Lisa. Oh, it was such a pleasure, Sadie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Follow us on Instagram at Match Volume and tune in every other Friday for new episodes. For Annenberg Media, I'm Hala Osger. And I'm Sadie Olson. See you next time. Have a spooky and safe Halloween weekend.